Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. With me, my co-host and creator of the show, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Jokic. Just call me the boss. And the reason why you're calling me the boss, Christopher, is because today it's Bruce Springsteen Day. Uh-huh. See? So, Christopher, I was so excited to find these clips. Okay, in a minute, you are going to call me an idiot. And if you don't, I'm already telling people that I'm an idiot. So we've been doing this show since <laughs> January. And, you know, every once in a while I come across something and go, Steely Dan, oh my God, that's great. And we came across the Tom Petty and the John Lennon and the Elton John. And I'm going, wow, who do we have next? Honestly, I am a huge Springsteen fan. It didn't even occur to me to put Springsteen in search on my files right. until right, a few right, days right. ago. He didn't do a lot of interviews, yeah. <laughs> and, and then when I found these clips, they are astonishing. They are pure Springsteen through and through. He has that self-deprecating thing. He kind of shies away from any kind of hype. In fact, the first clip we're going to hear is about how he didn't even want to do interviews from this year, which was 1978. All of that is so interesting, and it's so him. Also coming up, Christopher, we have a very early career interview with Nelly Furtado. It's fantastic. You're not going to want to miss that. And also a chat with another iconic and legendary Canadian, Andy Kim. First, let's recall some glory days with Bruce Springsteen. Well, Tom, the names The Rogues, The Castiles, Earth. Steel Mill, and my personal favorite, Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. (laughs) And the Sundance Blues Band have all in common, aside from their total obscurity, the fact that Bruce Springsteen was a member of every one of them. And and like most, well, I was going to say artists, songwriters, guitar players, there was a moment of of a certain age, that is. There was a moment that hit us all right in the solar plexus. And that was, of course, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. And you know, we just heard about this a few weeks ago with Don Henley talking about how his mom brought home the Elvis records and uh, something similar happened with Bruce and how when he first saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, everything changed. It happened to so many artists, so many artists of that era and Bruce Springsteen is no exception. Well, me too. I, I mean, I'll never, never forget it. It's just like your path forward out of teenagehood and into adult life is illuminated by that experience. It was powerful stuff. Springsteen's breakthrough came in 1972 with an audition for the legendary John Hammond at CBS. He is not a household name, I acknowledge. But this is the guy who discovered Bob Dylan, Aretha, and Leonard Cohen. So his bona fides are pretty good, I would Mm -hmm. have to say. Yeah. He brought Springsteen to the attention of his boss, Clive Davis, who signed the 23-year-old artist later that year. They started out with two very critically acclaimed records. I don't know how well you know these albums. Greetings from Asbury Park. Right. And The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Which Were one? Into those records? Which one has Rosalita on it? Wild, The Innocent, The E Street Shuffle. Oh, it's number two. Oh, my God. That's a great song. And there are... And Blinded by the Light is on one of those albums. I, I do like mm-hmm. certain cuts from them, but I can't say that I'm familiar with, you know, cuts one through cuts eight. Well, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle kind of changed a lot of things for me. I just... It, again, it was like hearing... Bob Dylan doing like a Rolling Stone, you know, as a young musician with a guitar in his bedroom, you, you it's like time stops and you mm-hmm. go, you can do that too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? You know, it was just doors of possibility. Anyway, those records both came out in 1973, but two years later, 
on an album that he worked on for about 14 months, which, you know, considering how in the hole he was to CBS, was kind of unusual. But they'd made the commitment. The next record, Born to Run, changed everything. For sure. The album was eventually six times platinum, and among other honors, if you can call it that, The Boss was featured on the covers of Time and Newsweek the same week in October of 1975. And I think he's going to be talking about that moment in his life and career in just a few moments. Well, nonstop touring to promote Born to Run, followed by a very unfortunate and lengthy legal battle with former manager Mike Appel, resulted in a three-year gap between that album and the follow-up darkness on the edge of town this interview catches him in that space and shows a a mature artist coming to grips with the highs the lows and the necessities of success i didn't want an instant replay of uh, you know my uh, born to run release you know and so i initially thought well i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna do any interviews right now lay low and let the record come out and stuff you know and I just realized a lot, a lot of things had changed since uh, 75, I guess. And, you know, slowly, I guess over the past month or so, I took a different attitude towards, towards uh, I guess, promoting your record. You know, it, it was something that, like, what? Promote my record? I can't do that. I chased very aggressively after what I was trying to get in the studio, and I worked real, real hard on it. And, and I believed in it a lot. And for some reason, you know, I, I was, uh, I guess, uh, I, it dawned on me that it was silly to like to do that. I mean, the records ain't gonna like sprout legs and walk out stores and jump on the people's record players and say, listen to me. And I said, here it is, I worked a year on this thing and, and, and I put everything I had into it. Now I want it to get out there, I want it to get heard. I wanna get as many people, you know, listening to it as possible you know and uh an audience is something that you know you don't inherit an audience and you don't they don't run over to your door and and you know knock on your door and sit in your lap you know you gotta i think you gotta go out and you gotta and you gotta say here's what i think i believe this and 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 give people a chance to hear it and make up their minds you know i was a little wary first of all of of you know, I was afraid of the born to run thing, you know. I didn't have it in perspective, you know. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know what had frightened me about that and what had not. And so I bunched everything into something I just called, like, the born to run, you know, experience or, t- or whatever it was, you know. Uh, what frightened me about it was I uh, started to play to get as much, say, uh, control of my, of my life as I could. And that's what I felt slipping away, and that's what scared me, you know? Oh, yeah. So he really does not want to do interviews. But then he realizes if he doesn't, people might not know that he has a new album out. And he realizes the value of promoting himself. He just truly despises the idea of hype. It's just not in him to hype his own product. Yeah, you can. I, I can. Well, maybe I'm imagining it, but I feel like I can hear his discomfort. But, you know, at the same time, he's recognizing that it's all just part of the job. And there were, for him, there were new realities to be dealt with after Born to Run. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, it's a different ball game and a different, you know, ballpark. And, and you, gotta, you better get wise to it or else, you know, you're going to get stomped on, you know. 
it's like to ignore that fact or or to is is just stupid you know and it's just what it is it's, it's not it's not real it's not you know i spent a lot of time ignoring that you know for mm -hmm. quite a while because not even intentional because it didn't it never connected to me that way you know it was like i was living the you know my 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 rock and roll dream there it was uh something that once I found, you know, once I got in that position of where all of a sudden, hey, look, 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 there's more money than we can spend, you know. Then come the distractions, you know. Then they're like, hey, what do you want? Do you want this? Do you want that? Hey, you can have this. You want a car? Do you want a limousine? What you know? That that come uh, come down the the line to to uh, take your mind off or to distract you from what is real and from what your your initial motivations, you know, your 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 the things you started out for, but I always had it in my head. I always knew that. I always knew what I was doing there because I knew when I was when I was losing it. I knew when it was slipping away. You know, uh, like I knew why I, why I started, and I knew when it was slipping away, and I and I got and I got scared by it. You know, you know it's easy to wander. You, a lot of people wander. Uh, you wander through their lives, you're bouncing off walls, you're bouncing off people, you're bouncing off different jobs, and and you end up 55, and you never found something that you wanted to do. You know, you're down the tubes, you know? And uh, when I was 13 or 14, I found something that uh, that was like a key to a little door that said, there's more to it than this, you know? There's like... A, there's just there's more to this than just, you know, living that way. I love this part. He talks about getting introduced to rock and roll at age nine. And from there, segues into the way to deal with runaway success. Initially, I was nine, you know, mm -hmm. and I saw my mother was was an Elvis Presley fan, and she had him on the TV. And she used to listen to him uh, on the radio, like every every morning in my house. You know, come down before you go to school. My mother's, you know, cooking up the breakfast. She's got the radio on on top of the refrigerator, you know, tuned to the AM station, and ever since I could remember, you know. So something connected then, but I was a little young. I was, uh, <laughs> I couldn't, didn't have the discipline or something to stick with it, you know. And then when I was 13, and when the English thing happened, the Beatles and the animals, that really kicked it, kicked it, kicked it off for me. I said, well, that that looks like something that's good to get into, you know? And uh, the point was, once again, it was to to have some say in the way you're going to live, you know, mm -hmm. and the way you're going to, the thing you're going to do. And for the first time in, in a long time, it was during the Born to Run thing that I felt that slipping away, you know? I felt, you know, the old gas pedal stuck to the floor, you know, in a, in a runaway car. I, I was... Lucky enough to realize it, and uh, and you know, and grinded, you know, and grinded to a halt. And uh, it was a, there was a moment where, like, I I guess assessed my strengths and my weaknesses, you know. And uh, it was I'm glad it happened, you know. I'm like I don't I ain't got one regret about about you know one second of the past uh, three years, you know. 
because I learned a lot from it. There you go. We're listening to a 1978 interview with Bruce Springsteen upon the release of the album Darkness on the Edge of Town. And there he is talking about the influence of Elvis and the fact that his mom brought home these records and played them for him and for her enjoyment. And, you know, his relationship with his father was far more complicated than his relationship with his mom. And if you want to read all about that, his own autobiography from last year called Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen, uh, from 2017 is excellent. But it is also quite fascinating into how much he deals with the relationship between him and his father. I always got the feeling in seeing Springsteen shows that in the more thoughtful moments, I mean, a lot of the show, of course, was just one great big party, which is why we went. But there were some sort of pensive moments that he would run the risk of of trotting out. And a lot of it had to do with dealing with his his father. And uh, I always thought that was uh, brave and and maybe a bit risky, but it, it, for for me, it always worked. Um, critic John Landau, while he was a then critic, saw Springsteen opening in 1974 for Bonnie Raitt. Oh, really, Bonnie Raitt? Huh. Uh huh. And he wrote a review that included one of the most famous quotes in rock journalism history. It's been butchered a little bit over time, but the original quote was, "I have seen rock and roll's future." And its name is Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) Good luck. Good luck dealing with that. (laughs) Well, Bruce talks about having to live that one down. The funny thing that was about that line, I don't know if it... I guess most people never read the article that it came from. Right. You know? And if you did, if they had read the article, uh, it was not saying exactly what it seemed to say, you know, when it was used in the ad. And I believe it was only run in one ad but it was picked up so fast because as soon as I saw it, I said, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, this, this looks like trouble to me. It was good intentions intended, but it was it was like a, a kiss of death, you know, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> and the article actually, which is an article that he wrote at the time, and it still me- means a lot to me, was uh, he saw a show and was, and was writing about it, and I think what he was actually saying was that that the, the music that we were playing, me and the band, was a compilation of a lot of things, not just you know past influences and present, mm-hmm. but that was the intention of the line. But it was like, I guess somebody at the ad department, you know, said, "This is it," you know, and uh, it went out, you know. Again, I go back to the point about him not wanting to be hyped or to hype his own music or his own career. There you go. Wow. This next clip is charming. He talks about the first time he met sax player Clarence Clemens. I was playing in Asbury Park in another club called the Student Prince. And it was me and Stephen and uh, Gary and Davey Sanchez and Vinny Lopez. And one night, uh, this guy walked in and... Uh, I'd heard about him for a long time, and everybody's saying, was always talking about Clarence Clemens. And he walked in, and uh, he said, can I sit in, you know? And we said, sure, you know, nobody was going to say no, and they got up. And he's, he played this one song, and I said, this is the guy who I, like, I've been looking for you all my life. You know, this is the guy who I've been looking for all my life, you know? And... Uh, Ever since then, you know, we stuck together. 
And again, going back to his book, Born to Run, Bruce talks a lot about Clarence and a lot about the problems that Clarence had in latter years and the hurt feelings that Clarence and the other members of the E Street Band had when Bruce disbanded the band in the early 1990s. And it goes into quite a bit of detail, and it's definitely worth a read. Well, among the things that he would like to forget (laughs) is the infamous nickname, The Boss. But what are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. That, like... I never, it was, it started the people that worked for me, you know. It was not meant like the boss, like capital B. It was meant like the boss, where's my dough this week, you know. <laughs> it was sort of like that, you know, and it was sort of just out of a friendly, you know, I guess it was from the band. It was sort of a, just a thing out of, just, you know, term among friends, you know, and it, it's funny because I never really liked it, you know. <laughs> You know, he just doesn't like being put up on a pedestal and being called the boss is one of those things. Bruce Springsteen from 1978 on Famous Lost Words, and that is great stuff. Thanks very much, Christopher. Tom, thank you for digging deep, as you always do. Well, you know, I have so much fun when I find these interviews and then I fire them off to you and say, hey, do you want to do this segment or should I? Because I already know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you do. You know me by now. Give it to me. I'm a dog on a bone. Let me tell you just before we go, the first time I encountered Bruce Springsteen, and that is um, 1984, I'm living in Sarnia, Ontario, and I'm about to cross the border into Detroit to see the Psychedelic Furs and Talk Talk in concert, two of my favorite bands of that era. And I get a buddy of mine at the radio station that I'm working at in Sarnia saying, look, One of our Springsteen winners didn't pick up their tickets. They can't make it to Toronto tonight. It's a four-hour drive. And my buddy said, I'm not going to give these away. It's too late. Why don't you take them? And I said, well, no, I'd rather see the furs and talk talk. And he said, don't be an idiot. You're going to Toronto. (laughs) And I said, well, my brother's coming into town. We're seeing the furs. We're seeing talk talk. That's what he wants to see. That's what I want to see. You know, Springsteen's not, it's not that much of a big deal. The guy grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, essentially. And said, jammed the tickets into my hands and said, get into your car right now. Call your brother. Tell him you'll pick him up. So we make the trip. (laughs) We make the trip in record time. I was doing 140K all the way down the 401. We make it Mm -hmm. to um, Exhibition Stadium, the grandstand, which is half half the stadium. And I think it's the first leg of the Born in the USA tour. And honestly... Other than the birth of my children, I think it might have been the greatest night of my life. (laughs) It was fantastic. It's by far the best concert I've ever seen. And I've never partied so hard, you know, without any supplements. (laughs) I've never partied so hard or had so much fun, but also in other moments, listened so closely and intently at the quiet moments, whether it was Bruce talking about an experience that he'd had or Bruce singing about an experience that he had or the band, the E Street Band, just at its best, being both nuanced and subtle and rocking the doors off this place. It was just fantastic. You know, and sort of following on that thought, it always amazed me how the size of the venue didn't matter. He owned the room. Yeah. Because I saw him play at, you know, Wembley Stadium in London, for example, in in 85, on the Born in the USA tour. And that was just crazy. That was, you know, I don't know, 85,000 people. And it was fantastic. And I'd seen him earlier in Toronto at Maple Leaf Gardens. It was just when they used to partition the gardens off and make it sort of Mm half-sized. They called it the concert hall or something like that. Concert bowl or something, yes. 
concert bowl. There you go, Yana. I think it might have been for the River Tour, mm-hmm. if I recall yep. correctly. And that was great. But I saw him in L.A. do like a little theater show that was a benefit for an organization called the Christic Institute. And Bonnie Ray played and Jackson Brown played. And um, when he when he came up to play, he was going to play some new songs that no one had heard. And people in the audience being, you know, a lot of industry people of this thing, were sort of yakking away and stuff. And he called them out. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> I need quiet to do this work. Yeah. So, folks... We were like, felt, you know, like students who'd been <laughs> chastised by the teacher. It worked, you know. The most disrespectful audience that you could have at any music event is with oh, yeah. the music industry crowd, right? Because they've heard it all, they've seen it all, they've met everybody, so they're not impressed. But their their inability to be impressed really makes for a tough room. Yeah. You got that right. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Christopher's not here right now, so it is my sole pleasure to introduce a legend in Canadian music, a legend in pop music in general, Andy Kim, to our show. I am happy to be here. <laughs> I was So I was just telling Andy a little bit about our show, Famous Lost Words, and what it is. And we dig up old interviews, and I showed him the archives, and there's these hundreds of CDs with dozens of interviews each. So there's thousands of interviews in that pile that you just saw there. And I know, Andy, that you're part of that. And your, your history with us as a radio station and with us as a Canadian you know, music industry goes way back. And honestly, Andy, you were one of those people, you, the Guess Who, and maybe one or two others who had hits outside of Canada well before Canadian content regulations came along. And you were waving the flag for this country long before a lot of other artists were getting any notice whatsoever. And so I just want to tell you what an honor and thrill it is to have you on the show. You're too kind. You're too <laughs> kind. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, you live a life and you you kind of do it for yourself. You follow your own dream and and uh, you never think that uh, what you're doing affects anyone except you. And uh, so I appreciate the words. Thanks. Well, you know, you said about following your dream. And I want to I start right there because you grew up in Montreal. And, of course, Montreal uh, airs this particular radio show. And we're huge fans of our fans in Montreal. You grew up in Montreal. So tell us how music and Montreal shaped you as a child. Well, music in Montreal had to started at home. I grew up on um, a street called Saint-Denis, really the corner of Saint-Denis and de Castelnau. And the alleyway was where we all played, uh, my kid brother and I. I have two older brothers. My mom loved Western music, so I always heard a lot of Hank Williams and stuff, and my dad loved kind of big band music, so that was being played as well. But, but down to the next bedroom where my brother Michael and I stayed, my two older brothers would play Elvis, and they'd play Buddy Holly, and, and they played those artists that, you know, Roy Orbison and, and all of that music. So, so basically, um, you know, when the Beatles showed up and I saw the, the excitement that the Beatles caused, there was a little part of me that started to dream about the fact that maybe I can do this. I have no um, musical training. I didn't have a guitar. I never sang anywhere. So it was a dream that started to manifest itself. And that dream uh, allowed me to convince my mom and dad that I could go to New York City. I had a two-chord song called How Do We Ever Get This Way? 
Mm-hmm. And that's what started it all. Yeah. That was 50 years ago. How did we ever get this way, wasn't it? Yes, 50 years ago. Unbelievable. No. But then as, an, as a very young teenager, what, 14, 15 years old, you decide to go to New York. That took some kind of moxie to do that. Well, you know, to me, um, you know, when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and you're going to go to New York, are you going to do something that's strange for your family? There's no courage there. There's just the obstinance of Mm. being a teenager. It's only when I got older that, you know, I would see, wow, that artist is like really kind of a kid. And and then I started to understand that maybe some people thought it was about courage, but to me it was never about courage. It was about something that I needed to do, that I will do, that I will be not stopped from doing mm-hmm. um, without knowing um, the dangers. I didn't know right. there was any danger, you know? Yeah. So it's almost like reckless youth or unconcer- carefree youth, I think, and you just went for it. You know, before we uh, started this interview, you were talking to someone else here in the hall, and you quoted Mark Twain. And the Mark Twain quote that you used, I think, kind of speaks to why you decided to go to New York. Can you re- repeat that for me? It's a wonderful quote. I read it two years ago, very late in life. It kind of summed up a little bit about me. The two most important days of your life the day you are born, and the day you find out why. And did you find out why when you were in New York? I found out why uh, when I was a kid, but I didn't know how to package it. Mm -hmm. Um, You go to New York, and I was lucky enough to meet someone by the name of Jeff Barry, Mm -hmm. who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who is really kind of a genius songwriter, producer. Right. And he takes me under his wing. But I'm always told the adage you're only as good as your last two minutes and 30 seconds right and he was a was a genius of a songwriter and you know you teamed up with him on so many great songs and uh, i honestly i wish we had more time because we would spend half an hour alone just talking about that era with you but i do want to talk about one of the songs for which you are best known and that is for writing and singing on sugar sugar now you didn't sing lead but you definitely did sing on that sugar sugar is a song that reminded me to always remember that i will never take a bow for inspiration you know I talked to Jeff about it, and we kind of wonder how, where where did it come from. It started really um, uh, with a phone call saying, the, you know, uh, Donnie Kirshner wants songs for the Archies. Do you have a song for the Archies? And and out of someone's mouth, you hear sugar, ah, honey, honey. <laughs> and the response was, uh, "What was that?" And I didn't remember what it was. Oh, wow. But he was there to remind me. And I said, well, it's a song. Yeah. You don't sit down and write sugar. Okay, what am I going to say after that? It's an inspired moment. Right. That went beyond anyone's imagination. And here we are 50 years later. It's the strangest thing because I can't explain it. Mm -hmm. I really can't. You know, 50 years ago, you were lighting up the charts at a time, as I said earlier, when Canadian artists were not supported well by the industry. So why do you think you did so well? My first answer is I have no idea. (laughs) The second thing, as I think about when I look back, I think that 
I grew up in an era uh, where the music that I heard at home was was all over the place. But I loved what I heard on, on the radio. I used to listen to WKBW in Buffalo mm-hmm. at night. My transistor radio would get that and sometimes WABC. And I wanted so much to write the, and be part of those songs and those songwriters. And and I, br- I think instinctively, intuitively, I brought that to, to Jeff because... He was part of the beginning of the 60s, you know, with mm-hmm. uh, Be My Baby and mm-hmm. all of those great, great hits. Great songs, yeah. Great songs. And and so, um, I don't know, I just always tried to be me and, and I, I, there was no envy about what other people are doing. I never looked over my shoulder. I never thought, I should be doing what that person is doing. I've... So I really don't know. Okay. I, I'm just lucky enough that a radio station in Detroit, Michigan... Loved how do we ever get this way so much that they added it the moment they got it, and it just so happened to be a radio station called WKNR Keener, and before you know it, you know I go from being a kid in Montreal to being an artist uh, out of New York City. Yeah, on know. the charts. On the charts. One of the things I heard you say in the in the hallway a second ago was radio was my savior. Do you mean that for your career? Or also for your life? For both. For my career, um, um, radio... Look, I, I came with no profile. There was no Andy Kim is on tour or there was no Andy Kim did this or Andy... I, I came as a stranger. Um, and radio accepted me immediately. And so somehow or other, you know, people tell me there's an Andy Kim sound that people loved. And so you, I kept on having those hits... But those hits gave me, gave me an incredible international. You you have a hit in the U.S. and you're international all of a sudden, and so it gave me an opportunity to travel the world many times over. And it also gave me the, the wonderful grace of a beautiful life. Mm-hmm. So radio was really, and and I've always felt this. You know, radio and and Andy Kim are kind of to me married. In my life, that, for sure, that took me everywhere. Well, those songs sounded great on the radio. They just did, and I, I remember being fourteen years old when uh, "Rock Me Gently" came out, and I just we like I remember my class absolutely loving that song. "Rock Me Gently" wrote the song. I it wasn't on a label. There's no one around to produce it, so I produced it. And when I tried to get a record deal, mm-hmm. nobody wanted it. So I came back to Canada and started my own record company called Ice and put it out on my own. And I think that that's a lesson that, that everybody who has a dream needs to know. Mm-hmm. It's not about them. It's about you. What are you doing? What is your dream and what are you doing about it? Not, oh, they said no. Uh, what's it mean to you to be inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame? Everything. <laughs> John Lennon gave me my gold record for Rock Me Gently. I've been around... Um, uh, Ringo Starr uh, at a Bruce Springsteen concert. We sat together. There was a lot of things that happened in my life. All the gold records, everything. The most important thing is Canada's Walk of Fame. It just, it opened up my tear ducts and it made me realize that how I wish my mom and dad were here so they could mm. really understand that right. I'm I'm not only their son, but I'm a I'm a Canadian son. That's that's how important it is to me. Andy Kim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
Let's go back right now to the year 2000, one of the very first interviews ever done by Nelly Furtado. This is great. She's so enthusiastic. She's so eager to tell us about her first album, Whoa, Nelly, which was about to become a very big hit based on the song uh, I'm Like a Bird. And it's just excellent. Here she is in conversation with Bruce Marshall from the year 2000, first talking about her many influences. I first started singing when I was four, and I was actually performing in Portuguese before English because I had opportunities to at my... Um Canadian, uh, I'm my, my sorry, Portuguese church, uh-huh. uh, the congregation we were part of. So um, there'd be Portugal Day on, on every year, and you'd go and um, and sing a song, whatever the first song was, a duet with my mother, sung in Portuguese. And from then, I started in school uh, doing musical theater and everything like that, playing instruments as well uh, in school for years and years. Um, and growing up with pop music generally around the house, but then kind of going to Portugal in my teens and discovering more. Um, Maybe even Portuguese modern rock music and stuff like that was coming out at the time. And then more recently, I guess I discovered Brazilian music, um, which clicked immediately for me because it's sung in Portuguese and I understood it. But I, I love the instrumentation because it's so um, diverse. This, this exposure to various musical styles. Yep. Do you think that could have happened anywhere other than Canada? No, I don't. And I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> because I think that's one wonderful thing about... Canada and living in Canada is it it's a multicultural country but everybody kind of preserves their cultural ties in a really nice way it is really like a nice little patchwork quilt of uh, things and people always ask me well Victoria is not exactly the most diverse city how about how did you come across all these different kinds of music especially especially surprised by all my urban influences mm-hmm. um, but growing up in Victoria I guess because I'm first-generation Canadian my parents are from Portugal um, and they immigrated over to Canada. I bonded with other first-generation Canadians in my city, so I could be at a, a Bangra dance or like a Latin dance or celebrating Chinese New Year or whatever on any given day, and it was a really great education for me. And that, that probably wouldn't happen anywhere else. At 18, you were offered the opportunity of a lifetime and turned it down at that point. Which one? Well, working with uh, <laughs> Gerald and Brian. Oh, okay. And, and that whole thing that I read in your bio. And yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Presuming is correct. Yeah. But you turned it down because you had things you wanted to do. Yeah. How tough was that? Um, you know, it it felt right. I think that the good thing about me and my music, and I think that's something that'll uh, ensure that I'll be making music for a long time, at least for myself, or never kind of burn out on it, is that I've always made music for me. Kind mm-hmm. of, it's never been for any outside force or source or anything like that. Ever since I started writing songs at 12, you know what I mean? And writing and getting in the studio at age 16 or having a trip-hop band at 17 or just doing improv- improvisational stuff with my friends and showing up at open mics and things like that. You know, it was always for me. Mm-hmm. So at that age, I guess I was coming out of a year of kind of doing um, Toronto scene. I was in a trip-hop band called Nell Star. I even uh, actually uh, recorded a video. I filmed a video as well. But I didn't feel ready yet. Because, again, I was only 18, and I was very naive to the business. I didn't want to deal with lawyers and managers' contracts and things like that. I was very untrust. I didn't trust anybody. So um, I guess I felt like it was ready for me to go back to Victoria. The other thing, really key thing, is that I hadn't yet learned how to play guitar. Mm-hmm. And it bothered me that I wasn't writing those complete, wonderful songs of the people I admired, like Oasis and The Verve and Radiohead and things. Like I wanted to write those complete songs on guitar rather than just write melodically and arrange things. Mm-hmm. So um, I decided to move back to Victoria, live with my parents again, have a normal life, go to college, study creative writing, and learn to play guitar. And I just chose to do that because I knew I needed to. I didn't feel ready to make my first album when I met when I met Gerald. But when they'd come to Victoria and play Philosopher King shows, they'd tell me, 
come out, come out to Toronto and, and, and do a demo with us. And I'd be like, I don't know, I'm writing, I'm learning guitar. And then one day Gerald just called and was like, okay, I'm, I'm free next week, book your ticket, call me back. And I just came out and it, we clicked and it was ready, it was time. But I'm Like a Bird was written in L.A. That was way later. Really? Party and Hey Man are old songs. Yeah. I'm Like a Bird is the newest song, the last song I wrote for Woe Nelly. I wrote it oh, in really? Los Angeles, yeah. Tell me about that. Okay, well, Gerald and Brian, uh, you know, the moment where you take, come and see your producers and, hey, here's my new songs, and what do you think of this idea? And they say, write some new ones, you know, like, go go home tonight or get, you know, go, maybe you should get a new guitar or something because I needed a new guitar. So I went out the first first day in the studio in L.A. and we got there all excited. And so uh, Gerald and I went out and I bought a new guitar and I went back to uh, the apartment I was staying in and, I, and the next day, um, and they always bug me and say, um, you know, don't do your homework at the last minute because I'd always write my songs kind of like right before they come pick me up or something. <laughs> uh-huh. Don't do it at the last minute. Sit down and write some songs. But, of course, there I was doing my homework at the last minute, about two hours before they were going to pick me up, and I wrote three songs. But the first one was okay, second one was okay, and the third one I wrote was I'm Like a Bird. Really? And I'm like, yeah, this is kind of good, so I played them the songs that night. We recorded the demo, and we were a little scared of it, because it was so different than everything else on the record. It was so straightforward and, and you know, wow. It seems simple, you know, but in uh-huh. a beautiful way. And uh, so we shied away from it at first, but there was an engineer who was working with us at the time, assistant engineer, and he uh, was dumping the tracks late at night, and uh, a week later he's like, you know, you know what I think the song is? I'm like a bird. You guys should really just do do it again, you know, you know, like, finish it, produce a song. And we're like, you think so? And we played it for the mixer, and he thought, yeah, do it. And so we did it, and it's my first single. I'm like a bird. I've been uh, talking to different people and reading different things on on styles when when you go into the studio. And I, mm-hmm. I hear, especially in the uh, 60s and 70s, people who went into the studio with something they'd written that afternoon and put it down yeah. and become a huge hit. Yeah. And, you know, it, but we're in these times now where... Uh, you know, you can record on your laptop, for God's sake. Oh, sakes. yeah, totally. So, you know, the technology has sort of brought things around so you can be a lot more prepared if you wish to be right, by right. the time you get to the studio. So, Hopefully, I'm Like a Bird will be a 70s-style hit. Write it, record it, and that's it. <laughs> Number one on Billboard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll hope for that. <laughs> All right. Your creativity, you have said, is connected to the outdoors. Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> um, well, growing up in Victoria, I don't know if you've been to Vancouver Island before. No. Have you? No. Oh, just my as far goodness. as Vancouver. Yeah, well, Vancouver even too is really beautiful. And Victoria, just the Pacific Ocean and even like all the Native American culture and stuff like that, uh, of the uh, indigenous people that live around Vancouver Island, is just like there's that there's that love of nature everywhere and, and growing up around the ocean is really um, important. And the, the, the main thing is... In Portugal, in the Azores Islands, the, the island my parents are from, San Miguel, they have farmland there. They're about 50 acres, and they have cows and a farm in Portugal. So my first trip of memory uh, was when I was nine years old. And I remember going, running up to the farm and, and, and looking down on the village below and, and getting this very Sound of Music-like, movie-like moments where I would just sing. I'd make up songs, and and it totally I was totally connected to it. And the ocean and, and the sky and the water, and very pastoral there, very pastoral. And... Um, yeah, it's just a part of who I am. I get inspired by the outdoors. Very Wonderful. inspired. 
Okay, so there you go. An interview with Nelly Furtado and Bruce Marshall. Great stuff. Boy, she really I'm, is a bundle of energy, isn't she? I'm such a fan of hers. I, I just love her music, and I love the energy that she puts out. I also think she's a very influential vocalist. Like, you hear Camila Cabela, and or Jesse Reyes, for example. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of Nelly in those singers. Mm-hmm. And there were so many, there was so much diversity in her music. You know, she did that song on the radio. She did the song um, called Legend. And they all had really different sounds. She did Quando, Quando, Quando with Michael Bublé, and it was just a gorgeous version of that. She did a song called Powerless, and I think it might have been from the Folklore album. Mm. And I saw her do it many years later with an African boys choir singing background. It was at one of the We Day events. And I don't know if you're aware of those events, but it's essentially Woodstock uh, for do-gooder kids in, high, in uh, public school and high school. And I, uh. when I say do-gooder, I mean that with admiration. It's not a, it's not a shot at them. It's just a great event and she performed there with an African boys choir and it was sensational and it just kind of showed the depth of her influence and the depth of her interest and what she brought forward to the pop charts and of course let's not forget her work with Timbaland and the song Promiscuous but particularly my favorite song is the one uh, Say It Right which is an absolutely brilliant pop song. I thought you were going to say man eater but you know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay so there you go Nelly Furtado on Famous Lost Words. That does it for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh, and also Tim Friedlander at Soundbox Los Angeles. 